Well, hey, good morning, City Light Lincoln Church. It's good to see you guys. Uh, thanks for coming this morning. My name's Austin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we've been studying Ephesians the last few months, and this morning's going to be no different. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, so you can open up your Bibles there. But as you're opening them, uh, just by show of hands, how many of you played sports in high school? Awesome. A lot of you. Well, uh, I played football, wrestling, and golf all throughout high school and absolutely loved it. One of my favorite parts of sports was making new friends. And one that sticks out to me is a guy named Chance. Uh, We quickly became best friends and and both played the wide receiver position. He was a farm kid uh, from McCook, Nebraska that ran a 40-meter dash uh, in like four and a half seconds. He was 6'2 and could bench more than anyone else on our team. This guy was made for football, but here's the problem. He couldn't catch a ball. And that's specifically a problem as him and I are wide receivers. And it looked like he had oven mitts on his hands. Like that's how awkward it was. And then one day after another drop pass, my coach walks up to him and says, Chance, is there something else that you want to do all day long besides drop passes? And Chance kind of looks around and says, well, uh, I'd, I'd like to tackle people. And, we're, and they're all just kind of bust up laughing. And we're like, oh gosh, that means he's going to tackle us now. Uh, but needless to say, the coach put him in. Uh, to that position as a safety, and uh, Chance led our team that year in tackles. He was an all-star, but uh, it didn't happen until he was in the position he was wired to play, right? He, he flourished once he got to be who he really was, and so did the team. We got to go to the playoffs that year. And so why does Chance's story matter? You might be living his story. See, Ephesians chapter 4 says that you have a part to play in the family of God, his team, his church. And I'm proposing that most of us fall into two parties. And the first one are the ones that think that they're spectators when God's actually calling you on his team. Maybe you haven't realized yet that you have an essential role to play in our church, or you've neglected it because it's easier to sit back and not contribute. And the other party is those of us in the room that might not be playing the right position. You're, you're gifted and you're trying your best, which I'm extremely grateful for, but not using all your giftings the way Jesus has made you. You might be pigeonholed or into trying to fit into a mold that wasn't made for you, and consequently, serving doesn't bring you joy. And, and, and just like chance, if you're not playing the role you're created to play, then our church is lacking an essential and needed position. So I'm praying that as we study God's word this morning, we walk out realizing that all of us have a part to play in striving to leverage our lives and gifts for the glory of Jesus. So look at me, uh, look at verse seven with me in Ephesians chapter four. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. My first challenge this morning is let's use the gifts Jesus gave us. Let's use the gifts Jesus gave us. Now, I don't know if you remember opening gifts as a kid, but in my house, it was a long process on birthdays and Christmas because my brother and I would open a gift uh, a new game, freak out, run in our rooms and play it. My parents would be yelling like, Austin, Katie, there's more presents here. But we were just so consumed and happy to play the present we just got. And, uh, and I feel like that's a natural response to a gift, right? Maybe that's not normal opening courtesy, but we were so excited to be able to use and enjoy the gift we just got. Verse seven tells us that we have a generous God. He's he's been generous towards us in giving us gifts. And so Paul says that grace was given to each one of us. So the question is that we have to ask is, what is grace referring to? Well, Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved. See, that's referring to saving grace, right? We're saved not by hard work or church attendance or scripture memory or fighting sin or even getting better. We're saved by Jesus's 
grace. We've all sinned by choosing our ways over God's ways, and we cannot save ourselves. We need to be saved. But we're saved by placing our faith in Jesus, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is saving grace. That's the gospel. So is that the grace that Paul's referring to? We'll look at verse 8 to help us find out. Paul says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. See, this is Paul quoting Psalm 68, 18. And it's this victorious psalm about God having victory over his enemies. See, after an army would win a battle, the king would ride through and receive gifts, both from the spoils of the conquered land and from his people. But, this is crazy, if you look at Psalm 68, 18, David wrote that the king received gifts, but here Paul says that Jesus gave gifts. Isn't that beautiful? See, a good king would go to battle for his people and then come back to get praised and celebrate and receive gifts, but our better king, Jesus, fought a battle that none of us could ever fight, and he won it for us, and he comes back to give gifts. That's grace. That's our God. And in verses 9 through 10, Paul just kind of stops in some sense and just contemplates what Jesus actually did. So to say that Jesus ascended means that he first had to descend. And Jesus, on his throne in glory, saw us, rebellious, broken, far-off sinners, wanting nothing to do with God. And rather than uh, turning his face away, he came down for us. And Philippians 2 talks about this by saying that Jesus, he didn't just uh, come down as an entitled prince or a a comfortable middle-class person. No, he came down as a servant. And he didn't just come to serve, he came to actually die. Like, he died on the cross for us. And he didn't just die as an admirable martyr. No, he died a humiliating death on the cross in between two other criminals. And he didn't just die a physical death. No, he died for our sin. He died a spiritual death, the death that our sin required. Jesus Christ paid the price from heaven to the grave. He descended. But guess what? It doesn't end there. Paul says in verse, in verse 10, he ascended far above all heavens. He didn't just stay down. No, he rose again and he is now seated in heaven as our victorious king forever and ever. Oh, and just to be clear on this, In case you're wondering, Jesus didn't go to battle for good and faithful people that cheered for him. He went to battle for people who were spitting on him. And he didn't just come and defeat this small, dinky little army. No, he defeated the force that seemed absolutely unbeatable. Sin, Satan, and death are defeated through our King Jesus. And because of his victory, praise God that we get that victory. That saving grace that the battle is won. But Paul says, listen, it gets even better. Grace in that sense, saving grace gets even better. See, when we place our faith in Jesus, we not only get saving grace, we also get serving grace. That's the gift, the the grace that Paul says that we've all been given. City Light, we have a generous God. It's, It's one thing to save rebellious people, and it's another thing to actually want to use them. See, God's grace doesn't just pardon us from sin, but it also empowers us to be more like Jesus. So would we widen our view of the gospel, right, by seeing that Jesus didn't just die for your future destiny, he also died for your present reality. When we talk about grace and the gospel, would it be bigger than just salvation? It's salvation, praise God, but it's so much more. It's saving, it's, it's changing, it's transforming, it's sustaining. And then 
In verse 11, Paul explains that there are apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. We have a generous God that gives diverse gifts. See, when I first gave my life to Jesus, I remember meeting these incredibly talented people, uh, so gifted. And, and rather than, than encouraging me, it sunk me into this season of thinking that I couldn't be used by God because I, didn't, I wasn't gifted like them or I wasn't as gifted as them. I wasn't as caring or I wasn't as smart. I couldn't share the gospel as well. I wasn't as bold. I didn't have as much compassion. And I felt this pressure to be like every other Christian I met to have and develop the same gifts they had. But by God's grace, I realized that we need a diversity of gifts in the church. The Denver Broncos don't need 11 left tackles. No, they need a, a quarterback and a wide receiver and a, and, a, and a safety and running back and a defensive tackle. They, you need an assortment, a diversity of gifts, and it's the same way for the church. And so Paul here gives a, a list of, of gifts, and they're primarily referring to, especially the, the first two, the church's early need. And so apostle is the first one. An apostle means uh, a sent one. Someone that, that's been sent. So Jesus had a lot of followers, but he picked out 12 apostles. And, and these men helped to lay the foundation of the church and attested to Jesus' resurrection um, by actual eyewitness accounts, right? These men paved the way for our church 2,000 years later. And that beautiful to think about their fruit, their efforts, their love and their care and their sacrifice actually is impacting City Light Lincoln Church 2,000 years later. So the capital A apostles were, were finalized in their use once the church was established. So none of us in the room are capital A uh, apostles. But every single one of us are lowercase a apostles, right? In John 20, verse 21, Jesus says, As, as the Father sent me, so I send you. I send you as well. See, City Light, we're sent on mission to tell the world that Jesus Christ went on mission for them. And the next one is prophet. Now, we normally think of prophets in the sense of like uh, predicting future events. But when Paul refers to prophets here, he's speaking about the people that proclaim the word of God. See, in this time, they didn't have the New Testament written or completed. So God would speak to his prophets in order for these prophets to guide the church and what God wanted for them. And if it weren't for God speaking to and through these prophets, we wouldn't have our Bible. So like the apostles, the prophets in this regard were only needed in the foundational ministry of the early church. But evangelists and shepherds and teachers are still very much needed in the church today. So evangelist, uh, this means the, the bringer of good news. Uh, in the early church, evangelists would, would go from town to town and proclaim the gospel to lost people. So apostles and prophets would, would build the church, but evangelists would fill the church. And, and uh, an evangelist's heart beats for, for people that don't know Jesus, people that are lost. And uh, you know that you have an evangelistic gift or heart if, uh, if you're really quick to start spiritual conversations. Like you can't do anything without talking about the gospel. If you know Ben on our staff team, uh, he leads our high school ministry. And that guy is an evangelist. Like we're over at Taco John's a couple weeks ago and, he, and he's telling Jorge about the gospel. I'm like, dude, I'm just trying to get some tater tots right now. Okay, some potato lays and a, and a soft taco. And Ben's like, I need to share the gospel. He, he's an evangelist. And, and just to address uh, the people in the room, and I know some of you are thinking about, about this, if you think that you're off the hook because you don't have the evangelistic gift, that's you. Well, 2 Timothy 4, 5 calls all believers to do the work of an evangelist, 
right? So if you don't think you specifically have this gift, you are still called to care for the lost and preach the gospel. Some are just more naturally inclined to evangelism than others, but we're all called to preach the gospel and care for the lost. And the last in verse 11 is shepherds and teachers. So as the evangelists would bring new believers into the church, the teachers uh, and, and, and shepherds would grow, protect, and help guide new believers into maturity. Um, shepherd here is synonymous with pastor. And so Mo, Ricky, and I function in this specific office in our church. To shepherd uh, uh, means to care for the flock. And so if you think about a shepherd back in the day, or even now, a shepherd would uh, be devoted to the protection of his sheep. If wolves came, he would courageously guard his sheep from danger. And this is a beautiful picture of what our role as pastors is for you. To protect you, to, to care for you, to help you grow and the primary ways that we do this is through the preaching of the Bible, right? That we might expand and explain the word of God, the beauty of his word in your hearts. This is our responsibility, and it is one of the greatest privileges of my life to be your pastor. And so these are the four gifts listed in this passage, but there are other lists of gifts that are broader to the whole church. Uh, You can read them for yourselves in Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, but just some of the gifts that are listed, in case you're wondering, are serving, uh, leadership, exhortation, generosity, administration, and the list goes on. But these verses are clear. I want us to see this. They're clear that all of us, absolutely all of us, no exceptions, have a serving grace that has been given to us by Jesus in perfect measure. We all have a special part to perform, at least one gift. Every single one of us has at least one gift. And if you're wondering what your specific gifts are, uh, I we're going to host a class soon to help discover those gifts. It'll be on Sunday mornings, probably at 9.30. Uh, and just to be able to see, hey, what, how has God specifically and uniquely gifted me? But in the meantime, I'd recommend studying God's word in regards to spiritual gifts. Uh, I encourage you to pray for it and, and about it. Assess your passions and strengths and then ask friends what they think your gifts are. <laughs> and just, just by the way, if someone comes to you and says, hey, am I good at this? Will you be honest with them? Okay, like if Frank says, hey, I think I'm going to be a greeter and Frank doesn't know how to smile, maybe guide Frank to something different. Okay, uh, and, and that might sound mean, but it's like, it's like no, we, we were so differently gifted that we should be using the gifts that God has actually given us, the things that we're actually good at. So be honest uh, about what uh, things are, your friends are good at. Call those out, but also let's be honest about uh, things that we're not super good at to kind of guard us from uh, something crazy. Uh, If Mo asks you to come on stage or Ricky and uh, they should try out for the worship band, tell them no, right? Uh, (laughs) This is not good. So anyways, um, I won't go any further than that. But as you find and use your spiritual gifts, it is absolutely essential for us to understand why we have them, right? We've got to understand why, why do I have these gifts? And so look at verse 12. Paul says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for purpose statement, building up the body of Christ. So these gifts, that this serving grace is given so we can build up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. And so the bottom line for every Christian believer is that each one of us should be involved in some kind of ministry in the local church. I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings or just the ways we would serve on this specific hour, but, but, but throughout the week, maybe it's helping someone with plumbing issues if you're a plumber or moving somebody or city group or making cookies or I don't know what it is, but that every single Christian believer would be involved in some kind of ministry within the local church abroad. Every believer should be using their gifts 
to build up Jesus's church. We all have a part to play. But I, I think that we've believed the lie that ministry is just for the paid professionals. Right, like I, I think this is a lie that we might not always say, but I think we, we operate out of it and think about it. And so I think there's two reasons this is perpetuated through today. One is that some pastors want to run the show and collect as much power as they can so they don't delegate or hand off responsibility. But this isn't our goal, right? This isn't the goal for, for, for pastors. Verse 12 says that my job is actually to equip the saints, equip you for the work of ministry. In other words, my job is to help you discover your spiritual gifts and provide opportunities for you to use those gifts. So that's the first one. And the other reason that we wrongly think ministries for the paid professional is because some people just want to sit back, be led, and let the pastor do it. And so you, you might be coming to church, you might be coming to City Light for a while, and, and you just want to come uh, and eat a Krispy Kreme and drink some coffee, occupy a seat, sing some songs, and, and listen to a message, and then just go home. And if I can lovingly just tell you Satan loves that view of the church and will do everything in his limited power to help you believe it. But I'm urging you, like God's word is urging you, do not settle for that small, boring view of church. And listen, if that is your view of church, I don't know why you keep coming. Like I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful that you're here. But I'm just saying, if you're coming for entertainment, there's more entertaining things to listen to. If you're coming for the coffee or donuts, there's better donuts and coffee out there. If you're coming for a comfortable place, it gets hot in here and it gets packed in here. If you're coming for social uh, um, interaction, there's better places to meet people. I'm just saying that, that don't sell out for this small, boring view of church. And, and I'm glad you're here, but I don't want you to stay there. I don't want you to, I, I want you to mature to see the glory of Jesus and the beauty of his church. And so I'm just asking, would you not sell out for a counterfeit view of church? Because you're missing out on what God intends for your joyful involvement in a church family. And the end of verse uh, 12 says that we equip you for the work of ministry. So here's what that means majority of my week is spent with Christians, discipling them, studying God's word, walking through life and eating together. We eat a lot, but you are the ones that are around non-believers 40 hours a week. You are the ones that get to rub shoulders with international students. You are the ones that have built trust with people that will never want to never step foot in church. You are the ones that get to do that. If I'm out to eat and someone finds out that I'm a pastor, like they start saying God bless and getting weird and like not, I don't know, it's just crazy. But you, you can build trust with people that, that don't believe in Jesus that, because you're not a paid professional within the church, right? But my, my job, my job is to equip you to go out and proclaim the work and love of Jesus. And I think this distinction between sacred and secular has been one of the most detrimental things for our church, for the church at large. Listen, if you work at Huddle or some other startup, do not be fooled to think your job isn't sacred, right? If you're a teacher uh, or, or you work in the health profession or something like that, do not be fooled that your job isn't sacred. If you're a stay-at-home mom or a parent and you, and you, and you stay home and cook for your kids and you do the laundry and you help out around the house, do not for a second think that isn't sacred. If you're a plumber or a handyman or you work in construction, don't you believe that that is not sacred? It is. That is where Jesus has divinely placed you to do ministry. Just because you're not on staff of the church doesn't mean you don't do ministry. 
Your full-time job is to proclaim the gospel with what you do nine to five. You don't need to quit your day job to do ministry. You're doing ministry right now. That's the opportunity in front of you to make Jesus famous where you work, live, and play. There's a guy named Mark Lutz in our church that's a plumber and handyman, and he comes by our church every single week to work on electrical stuff and plumbing for free. He just does it because he wants to love our church and serve our church. He's in his mid-60s, and he just comes by and does it. There's two ladies named uh, Brenda and Mary, and they get to church every single Sunday morning before 6 a.m. to brew the coffee and pick up the donuts and get everything ready so that you and I have donuts and coffee. There's a guy named Jeff Valder in our church that works at Company Cam, and he sits down with people in our church to work on personal budget and teaches our finance class for free, just wants to bless our church and use his gifts. There's a woman named Jacqueline Bishop that, that she stays at home with her kids and she uh, cleans houses, but she comes every single Sunday with her kids and helps clean the entire church. There's a guy named Reed Gahan that's a junior at UNL and he serves in our high school ministry and our college ministry and he helps uh, organize and schedule volunteers for audio and visual. Man, I can go on and on and on about ordinary people using ordinary means to serve an extraordinary God. And I want that to be your story. I want that to be your story, that you would use your gifts to worship Jesus and build this church. But here's one of the biggest enemies that we have to face in regard to this. Comparison. I remember being in college ministry uh, at City Light in Omaha a few years ago, and, and we're sitting there, and a friend is encouraging me and two other guys, and she looks at Kent, and she says, Kent, you're just, you're just so wise. You just have a gift of wisdom. Like, you uh, exude just diligence and, and knowledge, and I just want to learn from you, and I admire this about you. And she looks at Andrew and says, Andrew, you are just gifted with leadership. Like, people naturally want to follow you. You are just such a good leader. And then she looks at me and says, Austin, man, you... You, you've got childlike joy. Uh, wh- what? Like, yeah, childlike joy? I don't want childlike joy. Like I want the cool stuff, like wisdom or leadership or something cool. And, and, and I, I want to be known as the smart guy or the wise one or the, the good leader. And, and, and I just thought, man, I want something more profound than just childlike joy. Until I realized that the problem wasn't with my gift. The problem was with my view of, of the giver. Right? The problem wasn't with my gift. It was with my problem, the view of the giver. See, verse 7 says that we each have grace given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Jesus has given me this gift. And what did he have to do to give me the gift of childlike joy? He had to die. Like that's what my gift of childlike joy cost Jesus. And that's what your gift cost him. And, And to be disappointed in what gift I have is like an immature child pouting after opening a present that they didn't want. What disrespect, what sin against Jesus for any of us to not like the gift he gave us and wish we had something different. Now, if you've been around solid Christians for any amount of time, you know that it's extremely easy to feel insecure in JV, right? Like I feel like I'm not even on the freshman junior, I don't know, freshman team around us, most of you and around our staff team, like there's so many talented people here. Um, um, but, but comparison is the thief of joy, right? And one of the greatest tragedies is you living your life trying to be someone else. Listen, we don't need another Mo. 
We don't need another Ricky or Austin or Barb or Katie or Mike. We need you. We specifically need you, your contribution, your unique gifting and ability and personality in our church. We don't need another me. We need you specifically. So don't live your life trying to be someone else. Be you. And you want to know how to combat those feelings of insecurity or or comparison? Make it a practice of calling out greatness in other people. Like just really tangibly be intentional about selling other, celebrating other people's gifts and thanking Jesus for the gift he's given you. And he gave you that gift for a reason. He's sovereign, he's good, he's intentional and smart and kind and he gave you that gift for a reason. Listen, if you can trust him for salvation, you can surely trust that he gave you this gift for a reason and that he's good. City Light, do the hard work of figuring out what gifts God has given you celebrate the diversity of gifts and then use them for the glory of Jesus and the building up of his church. And my last challenge from this text is let's grow up and be more like Jesus. Let's grow up and be more like Jesus. So look at verses 13 through 16 with me. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, that's key, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. One of the most humbling things is sitting down with people in our church that have walked with Jesus far longer than I have uh, and far longer than I've even been alive and to sit with them and process through how Jesus is currently maturing them. And Paul, uh, he he gives four ways to mature. Uh, He says, first, uh, we we see that maturity involves becoming like Jesus. Right, becoming like Jesus. So all of us are a work in progress, right? None of us are fully matured, but the call is to become more like Jesus. And verse 13 says, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Jesus is our goal. Let's be clear about that. Not to be better, not just to be like someone else, but to be specifically like Jesus. Love the way he loved. Serve the way he served. Sacrifice the way he sacrificed. So the next question is, well, yeah, I agree with that, but how? How do we become more like Jesus? Well, verse 13 gives us two things. The unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. See, faith, he refers to the theological content of Christianity. And the unity of this faith is expressed in the common doctrine we'd all agree on regarding Jesus. Namely, he is the son of God. He came down for us. He was truly man and truly God, lived a spotless, innocent life. He performed miracles, was wrongly accused and punished. He died on a cross for your sins, for our sins. He rose again three days later. He is the only way to God. He reigns perfectly in heaven and he will come back one day. If you believe that, we're family. We're, we're family. We have different backgrounds and ethnicities and thoughts and, and, and all struggles and all this stuff. But if we can agree on Jesus and that common doctrine, we're family. So if you call yourself a Christian, you should cherish these and know these truths about your faith. And the next is the knowledge of the Son of God in light of becoming more like Jesus. And knowledge of the Son of God isn't referring to this head knowledge, but an experiential knowing through personal interaction. 
See, when I read my Bible and pray, I call that time with Jesus. And my non-believing friends think I'm absolutely crazy when I tell them that I'm spending time with Jesus. And they're like, he's a, he died 2,000 years ago. And I'm like, well, yeah, he didn't stay dead, but he's alive forevermore. They just think I'm, I'm crazy. But, but it's this amazing gift that we get through the Bible and through his spirit that we get to actually spend time with him. Like that he's living, he, he's there for us. It's amazing. And so the more time we spend with Jesus and his word and through prayer, we should naturally talk like him and think like him and love more like him as we spend time with him, right? Just like we spend time with any other person, we start to sound like them or act like them or think like them. It's the same thing with Jesus. And the second aspect is that maturity involves doctrinal stability. Uh, in verse 14, Paul says that he doesn't want us to be like children that are tossed around by different doctrines or human cunningness or craftiness. See, there are a lot of young believers in our church, which I'm incredibly thankful for because that means that Jesus is saving people. If there, are, if there aren't any young believers in our church, we probably haven't been preaching the gospel and inviting new people into his family. Um, but with that, I, I pray often that, that Jesus would protect you. I pray that, that you wouldn't be swept away from jumping onto the next coolest trend in theology that isn't accurate to the Bible. I mean, so many people I know listen to at one point in their lives preachers that aren't preaching the Bible, that aren't biblical. And, but as young believers, they didn't know what was right or what wasn't. They just knew he was a Christian and had a Bible in his hand and, and just listened. When I first uh, started learning guitar, I was amazed at how seasoned guitarists could hear a chord strummed and just say, yep, the D is a little bit flat right there. Yeah, you need to tune that up. I thought like, it sounds normal to me. Like it sounds good to me, but, but it was so easy for him to know what wasn't right. Well, how? Because he spent so much time learning and listening and hearing what a properly tuned guitar sounds like. And that's the call for Christians. As we're maturing, as we're hearing God's word preached, and as we're studying it for ourselves, we're realizing what's true. We're reminding ourselves of what's true so that when something false comes along, we can call it false and cling to the truth. A doctrinal stability. The third aspect is that maturity involves loving and truth. Now, verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. Now, I'm thankful that Paul follows up doctrinal stability with loving and truth because the more doctrinal stability I found, the more arrogant I became. See, I knew more verses, and rather than making me love more, I whipped truth around like a sledgehammer without any love. And, and, and I, I found out that I was more concerned with being right than being loving. And so I want to briefly address two people in the room. And the first is, uh, is if you know the truth, but don't really love. Now, I'm thankful for your determination of studying God's word, right? It's amazing. Keep doing that. But if it isn't resulting in you loving people more, then you're not getting what the word intends. See, verse, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, I can talk in amazing languages and, and, and all, know all these mysteries and understand them, but if I don't love, I have nothing. So don't ever stop speaking the truth. Don't ever stop reading your Bible. Don't ever stop learning about the truth. I'm not asking you to compromise from the truth or be tolerant to what isn't true. I'm calling you to cling to the truth, but use that truth to actually love people. The other people I want to address are the people in the room that love really well, but don't have truth as the base of your love. See, if your heart tends towards tolerance, 
That sounds like it's a loving thing to do, but it might be rooted in your desire for approval or you dodging conflict, right? And this is the, it's sneaky, right? This is the one I, I struggle with. I, I, I handle, and I'm walking through, like I want to be liked. I want to just be a friend. I don't want to bring up hard stuff. But what your friends need isn't tolerance. They need truth. Tolerance has, will never win a lost soul to Jesus. They, they need the truth that they're a broken, rebellious sinner, and Jesus came to bring them to himself. And if you're not serious towards sin, if you just kind of laugh at sin and think, ah, it's not a really big deal, God counted it so serious that he had to send his son to die for that sin. So yes, it is serious, and yes, it should be brought up in love through truth. Bob Walls put it perfectly. Truthless grace is sentimentality, and graceless truth is brutality. John 1.14 says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. So let's be like Jesus. <laughs> I know it's not a simple task, but let's be like him. And the last aspect is that maturity involves contribution. So look at verse 16 with me. Maturity involves contribution. It says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, every joint, with which it is equipped when each part, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's what that means. Our church, City Lot Lincoln Church, is held together when each part is working properly. You know uh, what would happen to your body if your uh, liver started acting like a kidney? I'm, I'm not a medical professional, but I think you die. Like, I just think that's what happens. I don't think it's good news if your liver starts acting like a kidney. And, and you might say, okay, Austin, I agree with that. That's, yeah, that would be a big change. But my contribution's small. My gifts are small and unnoticed. And if I didn't use them, people probably wouldn't even notice if I wasn't here. Okay, well, to you, number one, your gift matters immensely and equally, but as you know that you're a little pinky toe, a little dinky toe at the edge of your foot, uh, if you lose that or break that, it dramatically affects your stability and balance and ability to walk and run. So like, oh, oh you don't think you're important? Lose a pinky toe that we might think is insignificant. And it's, it's hard. It's, it's a disaster. It's so difficult to try to walk in that. So no, every single part matters. Every single part is needed. And so please Hear me as I say this. City Light, you and I have different gifts. All right, we can acknowledge that. But we possess the same value. We have different parts to play, but we share an equal importance to contribute. Again, you and I have different gifts, same value, different parts to play, equal importance to contribute. Can you imagine what our church would be like if every person here resolved to discover the gifts and use it to build up Jesus' church and love the city? Like if you're in this room and you're thinking, yeah, you know, uh, that, that's pretty good, pretty moving, Austin. I'm thinking about it, but, but, I, but I, don't really, I don't really know if I want to. We're not, like can I, can I just ask if, you're, if you call City Light home and family, you've been coming here for a while, what are you waiting for? Like, what, what, are you, what are you waiting for? A sign in the sky, a letter. I'm giving you the inerrant word of God and scripture that you can grab on you and say, yes, serve. Yes, you have gifts. Yes, you have a part to play. So I'm calling you, please, serve. Use your gifts. It's not just that our church is suffering. It's that you're not living out of your eternal purposes. Man, if all of us in the room said, yeah, we want to grow up. We want to become more like Jesus and be used by God and his eternal purposes, I promise you, 
it would be world-changing. We wouldn't just be another geographical building in the city that has a church name slapped on it. We would be a, a city-changing, a world-transforming movement of Jesus by his grace, I promise you, if we all did this together. City Light, your life is much bigger than a good job and understanding spouse and well-behaving kids. It's much bigger than nice vacations, comfortable retirement, and fashionable clothes. You are part of something vast, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God in heaven is rescuing broken people, bringing them into his family, and progressively changing them in his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of that. That's amazing grace. That's our call. Amen? Let's pray.